Hello all and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The Case of the Vanishing Corpsman, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. Stay tuned while we tell you about a little-known group of men who were not warriors, but who went into harm's way to save lives, and one in particular who did not come home. We want to dedicate today's episode to our loyal listeners in Brownwood, Texas, population 19,288, and that was probably on a good day when they did that count. We have a special episode for you today about one of your hometown heroes. And now, on with our show. Today is another special episode because we intend to highlight one of the lesser-known types of American heroes that we have not yet featured on No Home for Heroes. These men were not warriors per se, but they had a warrior's heart. They didn't carry rifles and machine guns, but they carried bags of bandages and medicines to save those who were struck down in the course of battle. And in the Marine Corps, they were even technically not a Marine. They were Navy corpsmen attached to different Marine units. Collectively, they were known as Doc to the Marines and their units, but they weren't real doctors. They were primarily, well, really serious trauma first aid men. On a fire-swept beach in the South Pacific, the corpsmen were about as close to being a doctor that a wounded Marine could expect to find. The Navy corpsmen tucked away their white sailor hats, their blue jumpers, and their black low-quarter shoes, and they wore Marine uniforms into battle. And sadly, they died with the Marines they were there to serve. During the Battle of Tarawa, a total of 1,090 men were killed in action. Of these, 27 were corpsmen. And 12, an even dozen, are still listed as missing in action today. Our story today is about just one of these missing American heroes who gave his life trying to save others. Robert Glenn Smith reported that he was born in Brownwood, Texas. He was known as Boots to his family and friends. At the time of the 1930 census, Boots was living with his parents, William C. and Floyd J. Smith, one older brother and one younger sister on Waco Avenue in Brownwood, Texas. Boots' father was employed as a boilermaker in a railroad shop. Boots quit school after the 10th grade and joined A Company, 142nd Infantry Regiment, 36th Division of the Texas National Guard, and he was assigned the rank of private. During his service with the National Guard, Private Smith was once arrested for sleeping in a public park while in uniform. He was detained overnight by the police and released the next morning to the military police, but no charges were filed. Boots was accepted for enlistment in the United States Navy in Houston, Texas on 9 December 1939. 
The term of his enlistment was six years, and he stated his reason for enlisting was to make a career in the Navy, although he confessed to the recruiter that he had no skills or trade at the time. He was assigned the rank of apprentice seaman. Seaman Smith listed his father, Mr. William Smith, of Brownwood, Texas, as his next of kin. Seaman Smith listed his religion as Methodist in his military records, and the letter P for Protestant may have been imprinted on his United States Navy identification disc or dog tags. His initial rate of pay was a whopping $21 a month. Seaman Smith had no tattoos, birthmarks, or major scars noted in his medical records. He did have his tonsils removed, and he had a previous fracture on his left wrist. Seaman Smith was noted to have a curvature of his spine that was about a half inch and a one-half inch dental overbite. He had blue eyes and a ruddy complexion, and his official photograph from the military contains a height chart that appears to show he may have been about an inch taller than his listed height of 69 and a half inches. He had just turned 18 when he enlisted, and he weighed a whopping 140 pounds. He had light brown wavy hair, and he had 20-20 eyesight in both eyes. After his enlistment in Houston, Seaman Smith was transported by train to the U.S. Navy training station in San Diego, California for his basic training. After graduation from basic training, he was assigned to the United States Naval Hospital in San Diego. And the 1940 census on 4 April 1940 confirms his presence there. He was promoted to hospital apprentice second class, and he boarded the USS Tippecanoe in San Diego Harbor on 24 May 1940 for transport to the U.S. Naval Hospital up the coast to Mare Island, California. During his assignment on Mare Island, he was promoted again to Hospital Apprentice First Class. On 29 December 1940, Hospital Apprentice First Class Smith was transferred to the 2nd Medical Company, 2nd Marine Brigade in San Diego, California. He was assigned to the 4th Medical Company, 2nd Medical Battalion, the 2nd Marine Brigade at Camp Elliott in San Diego. And while he was there, he got another promotion, pharmacist mate, third class. On 28 October 1941, pharmacist mate, third class, Smith boarded the USS Wharton in San Diego Harbor for shipment to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. In Pearl Harbor, Smith was assigned to the Headquarters and Service Company, 2nd Engineer Battalion, Division Special Troops. This unit was later changed to just renamed as the 18th Engineers. Pharmacist First Class, correction, Pharmacist Third Class Smith was present at Pearl Harbor during the Japanese surprise attack on 7 December 1941. Many in his unit served in the Guadalcanal campaign during late 1942, but it's not known if Smith was a member of the contingent of the 18th Marines who saw action on Tulagi, Florida, Gavavudu, or Tanambogo Islands in the Guadalcanal area. On 7 February 1943, Pharmacist Mate Smith's unit was withdrawn from Guadalcanal for transport to New Zealand. His unit was stationed at Judgeford Camp near Wellington, New Zealand, for a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. By 20 April 1943, Pharmacist Mate 3rd Class Smith was promoted again and again to the finals rank of Pharmacist Mate 1st Class. He was transferred to A Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, and later C Company, 
the 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion. Marcus Mate Smith was sick in the battalion dispensary with an unrecorded illness or injury from 20 April through 30 April 1943. On 1 November 1943, Pharmacist Mate Smith, along with 26 other members of C Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, sailed from New Zealand on board the USS Haywood. The Haywood arrived off the Fady, New Hebrides Islands for a week of amphibious landing training on 7 November 1943 and then proceeded on towards Tarawa. The 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, was designated to land on Red Beach 3 during the invasion of Tarawa. Members of Pharmacist Mate Smith's company, C Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, were equipped with two different models of landing vehicle track, or LVTs, the LVT-1s and the newer model LVT-2s. The plan was for the LVTs to deliver assault units of the 8th Marines in the first waves of the invasion. At about oh, 9.17 in the morning, oh, 9.17 hours, on the first morning of the battle, 20 November 1943, 522 officers and men of the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, began their assault on Red Beach 3 on Tarawa. The slower-moving amphibious tractors of Pharmacist Mate Smith's unit were able to crawl over the reef with their tank-like tracks, but they were under heavy concentrated fire from Japanese 70mm anti-boat guns and other weapons, including artillery, heavy mortars, and multiple machine gun positions. Our Foundation researchers here have determined that there were likely four LVTs loaded onto the deck of the USS Haywood, the ship which transported Pharmacist Mate Smith. These LVTs were numbered LVT 25, 26, 27, and 28. The specific circumstances of Pharmacist Mate Smith's death are likely known based on the compilation of several statements by survivors of the battle. This is a rarity for us to find survivors of the battle who can describe the circumstances of another individual's death. According to the verbatim written statement provided by an LVT driver named John Alcorn, quote, At Tarawa, there were four members of Company C, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, who were killed in action, three Marines and a Navy corpsman. They were Lieutenant Little, 1st Sergeant Quinn, Private Zazetti, and Corpsman Smith. Lieutenant Little's tractor was a command tractor with only one radio and a very tall antenna. This made it a prime target. I do not know if all the KIAs were on that tractor. The 2nd Battalion, Tractor Battalion, had 62 KIAs on Tarawa. The battalion started with 100 LVT-1s and 50 LVT-2s. When the battle was over, only 13 or 14 were still operating, end quote. In another letter sent to Private Zazetti's family by the chaplain, quote, Private Zazetti, who was an assistant driver of the LVT amphibious tractor, was hit by a 40-millimeter shell before the tractor reached the beach. The blast killed him instantly, end quote. And finally, another witness said, and this was another pharmacist mate, pharmacist mate Edward Caudill said, one of the Navy corpsmen named Robert Smith volunteered to drive one of the amphibious tractors to the beach. The tractor was hit by an enemy shell and all aboard was killed. End quote. Major Henry Lawrence, who was the commanding officer of the 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, wrote in his after-action report, quote, On Red Beach 3, only one of the 14 LVTs did not reach the beach because of enemy fire. 
That one received a direct hit in the belly about 100 yards offshore, end quote. And another after-action report notes that LVT-25 was, quote, much damage due to our own small arms fire in routing out snipers, possibly some of our own artillery, end quote. The report for LVT-27 states, Amphib half-submerged, much damage done by our own fire in routing Jap snipers, end quote. And in the film that you can see online called Marines at Tarawa, an LVT is shown being shelled by U.S. gunfire due to enemy snipers. The film is shot from the pier looking east into the lagoon off Red Beach 3. Pharmacist mate First Class Smith was listed on his United States Navy casualty card as killed in action due to, quote, burns, multiple, extreme, end quote. This document notes that a disposition of his remains was unknown. The Graves Registration Unit report and the Island Commander's report of June 1944 both list private, I mean, pharmacist mate First Class Smith's burial location as unknown rather than listing him as missing, as was done with many other Tarawa casualties. His individual deceased personnel file, or IDPF, has the following note, quote, while participating in action against organized enemy on Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands, received multiple burns resulting in death, end quote. And then, pharmacist mate first class, Robert Glenn Boots Smith, simply vanishes from history. So, where is Boots? Of these five names given by those witnesses as KIA inside LVTs, those being Smith, Quinn, Zazetti, Little, and Bowden, only Little and Bowden were recovered and identified immediately after the battle. In addition, Lieutenant Little and Sergeant Bowden were recorded to have been killed by gunshot wounds, while First Sergeant Quinn, Private Zazetti, and Pharmacist Mate First Class Smith were reported to have died by shrapnel from shell explosions. The weight of the fact seems to indicate that First Lieutenant Little and Sergeant Bowden were in a separate LVT, probably on Red Beach 2, from the one in which First Sergeant Quinn, Private Zazetti, and Pharmacist Mate First Class Smith were killed while attempting to land on Red Beach 3 on the other end of the island. Foundation researchers believe that First Sergeant Quinn, Private Zazetti, and Pharmacist Mate First Class Smith were in either LVT-25 or LVT-27, when they were struck by a Japanese shell that destroyed the LVT and killed most of those aboard. No photograph of LVT-25 has ever been found, but there is a photo of LVT-27 on the beach on Red Beach 3. That photo shows the nickname of that LVT on the back portion of the landing craft. The nickname was Short Arm, and it shows a massive destruction after the battle. It shows what appears to be a large caliber shell had exploded right in the middle of the LVT. (laughs) And ironically, the nickname Short Arm was a Navy and Marine Corps slang for a type of inspection for venereal disease given to Marines before they were authorized leave. And who gave these inspections, you ask? Well, the pharmacist mates did that chore, like Boot Smith, of course. The extensive description of pharmacist mate Smith's wounds on his casualty card and other documents all indicate that someone found and identified his body after his death. 
This is supported by the fact that some of his records simply noted that he was buried at an unknown location and that he was not listed as missing. These facts lend credence to the theory that the remains of pharmacist mate First Class Smith were not washed out to sea and he may have been the recipient of catastrophic injuries which later led to his being unidentifiable. Based on all the available evidence, including biometric profiling and our foundation's research, pharmacist mate First Class Smith is not a most likely match to any unknown who previously lay buried in the Punch Bowl Cemetery in Hawaii as an unknown. He is specifically excluded by dental comparison to be any of the remaining unknowns recovered from the punch bowl who have dentition. There is a possibility that pharmacist mate First Class Smith could be one of the 57 sets of remains that have been recovered on Tarawa since 1963, which await examination and identification by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. The backlog of recovered sets of remains awaiting identification by this agency is estimated to exceed 1,100 American servicemen and women who are currently stored in cardboard boxes on shelves in the Deep Paw Laboratory storage room. The average time for identification after remains are received in the DPAW or JPAC laboratory is reported by an internal analysis to be 11 years. The recovery and identification of First Sergeant Quinn as unknown X-115 from Cemetery 33 last year or now two years ago is believed to be an important clue in the case of the vanishing corpsman private correction pharmacist mate. I keep wanting to call him a private, but he certainly wasn't. Pharmacist mate First Class Smith. He was probably in the same LVT as First Sergeant Quinn. It is likely that all of the casualties from this destroyed LVT were gathered for burial at the same time and taken to the same cemetery on the island. Since First Sergeant Quinn was recovered from Cemetery 33 and finally identified a couple of years ago as an unknown from that cemetery, it's highly likely that pharmacist mate First Class Smith could be one of the unknowns recovered from Cemetery 33. We have assessed all the candidates to be the remains of pharmacist mate, first class, Robert Glenn Boot Smith. And we believe that he is a possible and probable match to one of only eight current unknowns. These eight unknowns received catastrophic injuries, including the loss of a skull, which greatly complicates their identification using dental comparison. Their eventual identification will likely have to come from DNA comparison by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory. We have repeatedly offered to share our short list of possible matches to be pharmacist mate First Class Smith with the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Command, but have received no answer for the past seven years. Hang in there, Boots. You haven't vanished from our memory. We will stay on your case until you are back home in Texas and we will be there to meet you when you arrive. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. Today's episode was from the active case number 0441 of the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. 
our foundation is dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and American servicewomen. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. We will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action every Saturday just for you. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next special Veterans Day episode on No Home for Heroes. We have another exciting true story planned about one of our missing American heroes in a case that we investigated from the Great War. Yeah, that's right, you history majors, an MIA from World War I. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them. <laughs>